This is episode one of the All Hazards podcast. You're listening to the All Hazards podcast, where we take you behind the scenes to give you exclusive access to emergency managers who've been on the front lines of some of the nation's most difficult challenges where we have candid conversations about the challenges facing all emergency managers, no matter how big or small the community. Here's your host, Sean Boyd. Yes, hello, I am Sean Boyd here at the broadcast studios inside the California Governor's Office of Emergency Services, also known as Cal OES. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to our first episode of the All Hazards Podcast. This is a podcast that we've been working on for a while. We've been trying to get this thing put together and put out there for you, the listener, and uh, hopefully in the near future, viewers as well. Many of these podcasts that we have already recorded have video that go with them, and uh, we want to be able to put that out soon for you. But uh, one step at a time here, baby steps. This is our first episode to our first ever podcast here at Cal OES. So uh, this is sort of a work in progress for us. But anyway, in this All Hazards podcast, we're going to be talking with emergency managers and first responders alike from across really all professions. We're talking about fire and medical and police and emergency services and the like. They're going to tell us their personal stories. And of course, those stories include their professional experiences as well. We hope to really get them to open up and talk to us honestly, without regard to politics or any kind of potential fallout uh, that may come from this. And we, we know that's a tall order, but uh, from what we're gathering so far, it's going to be doable because that's when you get the best stories. That's when you get the best lessons, when these folks can be open and honest and not worried about what the guy next door or the woman across the hall is going to say. Some of these people are retired. Some of them are still active. Um, so either way, they've got a lot of great information and stories that they're going to give us. And again, the goal here is to really take those lessons, to hear them, as well as the wisdom that goes along with that. And you'll be able to take that and add it to your own toolbox. That's the goal. So hopefully you'll enjoy it, get some entertainment from it, as well as learn something from it. So today... Uh, first up, we're going to sit down with retired San Diego mayor and SWAT commander Jerry Sanders. Really interesting guy. Very honest. He's one of those guys who really opened up to us. He was the one who was in charge of the police operations at the McDonald's massacre at San Isidro back in 1984. You know, if you don't know where San Isidro is, it's down south of San Diego, right near the border of Mexico. You take that red train all the way down there, and that's where it stops before you get uh, across the border to Tijuana. Uh, horrific incident um, back then. 22 people killed, 21 wounded. You know, how do you even begin to organize a response to a chaotic scene like that while being shot at nonetheless? And besides that, what other challenges did he face? What were some of the decisions that he had to make right then? You know, And what was the key to leadership? He was the commander. And how is he doing today? You know, we're going to answer all those questions and more from Jerry Sanders right here, right now. Well, I got to tell you, being here in San Diego, 
on this fine Tuesday. We've got some beautiful weather today. Wouldn't you agree? Well, I, San Diego's just about like this all the time, so we're pretty lucky. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. Uh, we are here today with uh, Jerry Sanders, who is the current president and CEO of the local uh, San Diego Chamber of Commerce. Uh, but more importantly, I think for our purposes today, uh, was he was the commander of the San Diego PD SWAT team back when the gunman walked into that McDonald's down in San Isidro and began opening fire. Uh, Mr. Sanders, I can't imagine what that scene must have been like. I, I mean, I just can't. You know, and I, and I heard it on the news. I was aware of it. And then when I moved down here a few years later, I remember going down there. Obviously, the McDonald's was gone. But I tried envisioning what that scene must have been like. Can you tell me what it was like? Well, it was, I mean, there were several different scenes. Uh, when I first got down there, uh, it was just mass chaos. And the shooting was still going on. And uh, it was, you know, you couldn't see inside the McDonald's because of the afternoon sun. It was uh, after 4 p.m. Uh, the windows were all spidered by gunshots out. Uh, James Oliver Huberty fired several hundred rounds. I think it was about 145 rounds uh, outside uh, uh, the McDonald's at different things moving around, police officers and other people. So it was just, it was kind of a surreal experience uh, to see a place where, you know, families go and kids go to play on the playground stuff, uh, to see it looking like that at the time. When did you find out there was something going on there. How did you hear about it? Well, I was at a <clears throat> retreat for uh, command staff on the police department in Mission Bay. Uh, all of a sudden, pagers got started going off all over the, the room. Uh, and my boss at the time said, you'd need to get going right away uh, to San Isidro. And that's when I started getting the information that they had at least one gunman. They thought maybe three gunmen inside the McDonald's, mm -hmm. uh, literally shooting people and shooting out. Uh, you're looking at the worst case scenario for something like this to happen. Weekday, 4 p.m., uh, outbound traffic. Traffic was so tied up it was hard to get people through. Uh, and it was the furthest point in the city away from downtown where most of the SWAT officers were. So it was taking time to get people mobilized and get them down there very quickly. Hmm. When you got there, the scene was established by the incident commander, you were commanding the, the SWAT team. Um, what were the challenges besides the sun and besides the glass that had been broken? And there was a lack of intel, if you would, at this point when you get there. Uh, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced and, and some of the fears that you had when you got there to try to make sure that you know, there were fewer victims than what could be. Well, you know, I think the biggest challenge we faced was the lack of intelligence. Uh, we didn't know how many gunmen were in there. Uh, Hubert had actually fired three separate weapons. He'd fired a shotgun, he'd fired a 9 millimeter Uzi, and he'd fired uh, a handgun. So different reports, and people were telling us there were more than one suspect inside. We also didn't have a clear description of them. Uh, we had several different descriptions. So our biggest challenge was getting some people who could tell us some accurate information. And several people had run from the McDonald's. I mean, we found them across the freeway. And they were bringing those back to the SWAT command post so we could debrief them and find out exactly was, what was going on. Uh, pure terror in those folks' face I, and reactions. Well, it was pure terror. Uh, they had been through something that was unbelievable. Some of them had been wounded. Uh, they could also, and we could also see, 
uh, people that were dead on the outside of the McDonald's. And, you know, we just didn't know what was going on inside at that point, except we knew people were shooting, shooting out at us. We knew there were people inside who needed medical attention. We had been told that by the, the people who had escaped. We wanted to get in there as quickly as we could, but I also didn't want to send officers just rushing in uh, and have them in the line of fire of a madman. Uh, that just didn't make any sense to me at all. As soon as we could get an accurate description and find out it was only one person, uh, then I was able to tell the snipers they had a green light uh, and also uh, hold the perimeter but to get an entry team ready so that we could get in there as quickly as we possibly could. It was hard to know what was going on inside. Well, it was almost impossible to know what was going on inside until we got some of the people who had escaped, uh, and they were able to give us a very clear picture of what was going on inside. Uh, instead of the three people that we had been told or thought were inside, we knew there was one suspect. I uh, knew he was wearing uh, camouflage utility pants and a maroon pullover. And we also knew that he was shooting three separate weapons, and he was firing a lot. So that helped us really narrow down what we were going to be facing and how quickly we could act. Critical intelligence here. Well, it was critical intelligence. We, if we would thought it was three suspects, we would have approached it differently. Knowing it was only one suspect, we were able to give our uh, sniper a green light. So as soon as he saw the suspect, as soon as he saw a maroon pullover, uh, then he was able to take that shot. And it wasn't too long after we got that. This guy had to be stopped, and you gave the green light for the sniper to do his job. How difficult was it for the sniper to do his job effectively? Well, until the, uh, the suspect walked in front of a glass door that he had completely blown out with a shotgun, all he could see were shadows, and we didn't know if they were uh, victims or if they were the suspect. The second he walked in front of the door and stood there, the sniper was able to take him out really quickly. From that moment on, what happened with the SWAT team? We had an entry team already prepared, already moved up behind the building. Uh, they were able to make entry uh, immediately. Uh, they were able to, to go throughout the entire uh, McDonald's. Uh, there was also an underground area where they did storage. Uh, one of the problems we had was panic. Uh, as soon as the officers went in, the people who were alive jumped up and tried to run out. Uh, which was confusing to say the least, but the officers showed great restraint. And then the, the people were also panicked because they saw officers in, uh, in camouflage utility pants, and they didn't know if it was Huberty or some of his buddies. So uh, once again, it was the officers really showing great restraint and not uh, doing anything, and we were able to get the calm down. There's a whole other safety element that you have to take into account, and that's their mental well-being. Difficult seeing it to say the least. Well, yeah, there were, I mean, there were 22 people dead. Uh, there were numerous wounded. I think we ended up with about 21 wounded, not all of them still inside. But uh, you, you have to take into account your officers see all this. Uh, they have children. They have family. Uh, so we called out the department psychologist. Uh, we had learned that from the PSA air crash in 1978. Uh, and we went to a quiet place and, and let the uh, department psychologists debrief the entire team to tell them what they 
should be feeling, um, to let them talk about it, uh, just to make sure that at least they were in a place where uh, they could get some of the stuff off their chest right away. How difficult was that to get them to do that? Because a lot of these guys are very type A personalities. Well, it was very difficult. Uh, and you have to have someone start out. And then once one person will start out, especially if it's someone the rest of the team respects, then they'll start talking. But certainly not everybody talked that day, but we checked in frequently after that uh, to make sure that they were talking to somebody. And that was really the key. The key to leadership <coughs> in your point of view uh, in a situation like this is what? Well, I, you know, I th I, it just goes back to once again, you set the tone by your demeanor. Uh, and if you're running around like a crazy person and you're yelling at people and you're barking orders and you're asking everybody what they're doing, you're going to set up um, you're going to set up a situation that isn't going to work out. So if you can be calm, if you can have them feed you the information as soon as they get it, uh, and then issue some very uh, direct orders, uh, but also rely on your people. And I think that's what we did that day, and I think that's the key to leadership in a critical incident. Mm -hmm. What was the most difficult challenge for you on this scene? Well, I mean, I, I had a daughter that was the same age as the youngest victim. Um, you can't go in there and see a mother trying to cover her baby. Both of them have been killed and not leave there feeling that uh, things aren't right in the world at that point. Uh, so I went home and held my daughter all night. What did that do for you? Well, it, it just calmed me down. Uh, and I think when you encounter a critical incident this big, um, you're still in shock. Uh, you know, I didn't get home till really late, but, you know, I was still in shock at that point. And I think that you, when you're at the scene and you're engaged in directing and making sure your people are taken care of and making sure EMS is there and, and the investigation's begun, you're kind of, you're in your element at that point. But when you get away from it, it hits you all at once. And I would imagine not only <coughs> do you have the sights burned in your memory, part of that memory is also... You know, the temperature, it was hot that day, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I can remember it vividly. I, and every time I drive by it when I go to Mexico now, even though there's no McDonald's, I can still picture everything that happened that day. Uh, very hot, uh, sun shining on those windows so you couldn't see them, but you could see bullets spidering everywhere. Um, you could smell what was happening inside. Um, it's just something you never forget. Uh, it's something you can't erase. Uh, but it gives you perspective for the rest of your life. And I think anybody that was there that day picked that perspective up. And that perspective is there'll never be another day as bad as this one. Right. Um, and you said the sights and the, the smells. Have you been back in a McDonald's since? No, I've never been Not back to McDonald's, no. no. What happens when you smell that? Does it just bring it right well, back? Well, you know, it, <laughs> you could just smell fast food smell, but you could also smell blood and you could smell fear. Mm. Uh, and it's just not something that uh, I don't go into any fast food place anymore simply because that's not something that uh, excites me and, and it all comes back the second you go in. Understandable. Understandable. What would be the legacy of this particular incident in terms of the overall scope of emergency management, emergency response? Well, you know, I think the entire police department learned a lot, uh, learned about media relations, learned about the psychological side of it, learned about uh, community relations. Uh, when you lose that many people, it doesn't matter how good of a job you've done, people are angry, and that community was very angry over everything. Uh, but we also learned that we needed to have communications equipment that actually worked. 
Uh, we needed a protocol in place for the media so that we didn't have helicopters right on top of us. Uh, we went to a full-time SWAT team after that, a uh, 12-member uh, special response team that uh, was used frequently after that and have done a great job, still exists to this day. Uh, so we learned a lot of lessons from that, and uh, I think they were productive lessons. I also, uh, and some of the team, went out across the country uh, actually showing people what had happened, showing them what our response was, and we had an opportunity to share that uh, all over the United States. Well, you seem to be uh, very much in control uh, of your emotions now. I would hope that your team is also doing well nowadays. Well, they are doing well. Um, you know, a lot of them have gone on to, uh, to a lot of different things, but nobody left the department because of that. Uh, we learned after the PSA air crash where we had about 146 bodies everywhere. Mm. Uh, we lost a, uh, several people to uh, disability uh, retirements, and that was the reason we're so careful with the psychological help immediately at the scene. Um, we had a tough summer that summer. We had a couple of police officers killed and had a, uh, that was about a month later, and had an all-night SWAT thing where we finally caught the suspect. Uh, had an Egyptian Army officer, Air Force officer, not long after that, a month later. Uh, line up his four children and shoot them each and the uh, same swap team went in so some of the officers did leave the team saying that they'd done their uh, time and they wanted to move on to other things but I think that uh, they performed well the department supported them and uh, those are the things you learn when you go through some of these things any final messages bits of wisdom anything that you can pass on to uh, you know I, I guess that what's important is that you take care of your team uh, that you also make sure that you've got good information, you act on it as quickly as you can, but you don't rush things so that you get people unnecessarily hurt. Jerry Sanders, the former SWAT commander for the San Diego Police Department back during that horrific day in 1984. Uh, and here you are today, the CEO and uh, president of the local San Diego Chamber of Commerce. Things are going well for you. <laughs> yeah, after a long police career, yeah. being mayor, now I'm loving life. Good deal, good deal. And what better place to do it? Anyway? Yeah, Same I feel very lucky all the time. Beautiful city. Uh, well, sir, thank you very much for taking the time to share these thoughts with us and, and uh, the lessons learned. And um, I know it's not easy, but I think it goes a long way to helping those who follow in your footsteps. Well, I hope it does. Thank you. Thank you very much. There you have it. Jerry Sanders, I told you, he was going to be open and honest. You know, there was some controversy about how the San Diego PD handled that crisis back then. Some of the victims' families felt the police took too long you know, to put an end to the gunman uh, and to storm the restaurant. They even filed a lawsuit over it, which was later dismissed. They learned a lot of lessons uh, in this incident, and Jerry Sanders took those lessons on the road and taught others in his profession about that. And many of the lessons that they learned led to changes in that department, which still exists today for the betterment of the department, of course. So uh, very interesting. And we hope that that's going to be uh, setting the bar for us here. Jerry Sanders and his podcast here with us will set the bar um, for all podcasts to come. So we hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed putting it together. And that's the best part about this. I get to sit down and talk with these people face-to-face and um, really get some very interesting stories. And uh, I wish you could see some of the expressions on their faces as they're talking to me. And maybe very soon you will. 
So anyway, thanks for taking your valuable time out of your day to listen to our very first episode of the All Hazards Podcast. We hope you got something out of it. I know I did. And we'll be making improvements along the way. So be sure to send us your ideas and your thoughts, maybe about who would make a good guest. So till next time, I'm Sean Boyd at Cal OES headquarters in Sacramento. Take care and be safe. You've been listening to the Cal OES All Hazards Podcast. Don't forget to check out our podcast page where you can find past episodes along with show notes and links. And give us a social shout out. Tell others about us on Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you.